and welcome to the new season of Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah, and if you follow us on social media, you probably are already aware that Tyler's baby was born a couple days ago. Uh, I'm recording this episode on February 8th, and Alastair Wayne Clausen was welcomed into the world on February 5th, so that is very exciting. Um, It means that Tyler is taking some much-needed time off to go be a dad and all that stuff. Um, So joining me today is longtime friend of the podcast, Devani Anjali. Hi guys, and congrats, Tyler. I know, it's so exciting. Did you see the pictures? I did, yeah. Oh, he's so cute. What a sweetie pie. All uh, infants are kind of like creepy looking to me, but (laughs) uh, I have to admit that Tyler's is like kind of cute, especially when he was all like wrapped up in his blankets. (laughs) Yeah, they picked some really cute uh, little baby themes with the cartoon animals and the woodsy, like almost where the wild things are from. Yes. With like sketch art of animals. <laughs> Loved it. And then um everyone listening should be following Tyler on Instagram, but if you're not, he did like um this movie style poster or whatever of Rebecca holding the baby and he's like Rebecca and the baby out February 5th or something. That was great. I liked that. He, yeah, he really uh, took his his social media announcement of it to the next level. And like, I honestly, because I knew the baby was due in January, like late January. So when I saw him post it, I was like, oh, like maybe this is a couple days after the fact, like he's taken some time or whatever. Oh. But no, like Tyler was on the hat. He was like, hey guys, announcing my next project, <laughs> fatherhood. Yes. So yeah, so he's off doing that. And uh, I'm really excited to have kind of a rotating a uh, group of guest hosts on, uh, starting with you because you know you've supported us from not maybe not day one, but for like years, basically almost Probably since day, day one, one of the the podcast. Um, well, so yeah. I met Tyler um, in another Facebook group of creators where he chatted with me about the podcast, and so I knew Tyler just a little bit before he started the podcast. We were just building a little online connection and everything. Oh, so you did um, know him before we started? Like probably three months before you started the podcast. Okay. We started, we somehow were connected. We were in similar groups. Um, At the time I was doing other creative endeavors and yeah, that's kind of how we met. Just the randomness of online writing communities and creative communities. I love that. I have like- since this podcast and also with like working remotely it now seems like the vast majority of my my friends and peers are online people that I've met which is great Um, but definitely like a sign of the times I feel like totally totally yeah I have absolutely enjoyed binging the show and following along and there's so many really really cool things cool crazy kooky insane things about writers that you know some of whom I'm I grew up reading some of whom I missed out on reading their work and so learning about them was really fun and building a reading list based on learning these funky authors has been has been fun so yeah I find myself doing that too I got Dune recently um after being super fascinated but I loved you guys uh I think you did a two-parter on Frank Mm -hmm. Herbert super interesting story and then watching the movie was really awesome and so I I'm slowly working my way through that book and very yeah, I just want to tell everybody who is a writer out there I completely understand Tyler's existential <laughs> crisis <laughs> it's real 
Yeah, uh, Frank Herbert was quite a guy and Dune is a doorstop. So uh, I don't blame you for slowly chipping away at that one. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, like a couple pages before bed. Oh my God. So before we get into um, today's author, um, do you just want to like share a little bit about yourself uh, aside from the fact that, you know, we love you here at Between Lewis and Lovecraft? <laughs> besides the fact that I'm friends with the podcast. Yes. <laughs> All right, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm online. I'm Dystopic Hippie and I am the chief operating op- uh, officer of a company called Liberty Virtual Assistance, where we help uh, online businesses hire remote customer support staff. I am also the co-creator of Rare Doge Club. It's an NFT project on the Doge blockchain. And I am the co-writer and project manager of the Life of Doge comic, which we will be releasing pretty soon, actually. We're working on the final details of season one, and it's a comic strip, basically, that we're creating. That's awesome. So, so you're like marketing 30 second spiel. <laughs> yeah. You're like marketing slash businesswoman extraordinaire by day and creative by night. Uh, cat mom and um, random hobby explorer <laughs> and wife. All well, those things at night. <laughs> you know, uh, in terms of all the random hobbies and staying busy all the time, you can probably identify with our author today quite a bit. Yeah. So um, this was your choice uh, for, well, we kind of like went back and forth with a few, but this was one of the names that you floated that I was like, yes, I have read some of his stuff slash seen mm-hmm. some of his uh, film products. And that author is Michael Crichton. So uh, yeah. probably best known as the creator of Jurassic Park. Would you agree? Probably. Yeah. yeah. That's the uh, big one. Or, or Westworld. Or Westworld. The original, the original Westworld, if you're into that. Yes. Well. Which, you know, bears little resemblance to the new one except in like concept like obviously they're both the same theme park or whatever but all the characters are different so Mm -hmm. but that was uh Michael Crichton's brainchild so uh yeah without further ado I guess uh we should start where we always start on this show uh when John Michael Crichton was born in Chicago Illinois on October 23rd, 1942 so uh this was the first surprising fact to me that his first name is John not Michael so everything I thought I knew was a lie and it just gets worse from there (laughs) it does indeed (laughs) Um, you know after childhood uh he was one of four children uh his siblings are Douglas Kimberly and Catherine um and his dad John Crichton so hence the first name uh had been a World War II Navy lieutenant uh journalist and then an editor of Advertising Age, which was like a trade publication. Um, And then toward the end of his life, he was president of the American Association of Advertising Agencies, which apparently was like the industry leading agency back then. Mm -hmm. Um, What a cool way, uh, what a cool way to get into writing. I know that's his dad's career, a journalist and advertiser, but there are, I do know several authors who like marketing, sales and or advertising because of its heavy influence and copywriting and storytelling like it then was like oh it kind of bridged their creative gap of I want to write books yeah really cool thing and we'll see later on that like his dad's experience in not only journalism but in like the copywriting and advertising Mm -hmm. field really influenced uh Michael's style as well and like his dad imparted a lot of lessons about brevity and writing for clarity um, on his son. Um, and oh my goodness, you're a journalist. <laughs> yes. An yeah, editor. Well, and so it seems like a natural fit. The words just, just don't stop. 
the the words do not stop. Although I've personally found that like since becoming a professional journalist, I write creatively a lot less. So yeah, I think I I'm going in the opposite direction, which is the a little words bit don't discouraging. Stop, but I stop the words because sanity. Uh, yes, I, exactly. <laughs> There's just too many words. Yeah, totally. So um, one of the things that uh, oh I I should mention I read um. Michael Crichton's memoir travels for, for this podcast, um, which really only covers, um, basically his college years to like the late eighties. So it's not a complete memoir and we couldn't find like a full biography about him. I know that you did a lot of research online and in interviews. Um, but yeah, so most of my, this is our like international man of mystery. (laughs) Yeah. He kept it under wraps. Um, and that's going to be a theme. Yeah. He's definitely not one who seeks the limelight, which... It makes me think he has lots of skeletons in the closet, <laughs> but, and maybe that's the realty. Maybe we'll find that out someday. That would be incredible. We'll do like a news flash breaking news episode on the, on the podcast and be like, remember, <laughs> remember the guy with the least amount of tea? <laughs> we found it, the tea. We found the tea. <laughs> so he mentioned in um, Travels that writing had pretty much been his earliest life ambition um in third grade when he was nine years old his class had to write a puppet show um and young Michael Crichton wrote a nine-page epic involving so many characters that apparently his dad had to retype it into carbon copies because this was before like computers and printers at home uh he had to retype all these copies so that his classmates could uh help perform it um, and he mentioned that his dad told him he'd never read anything so quote cliche written in his life um so even though john Crichton was like kind of the influence for his son being interested in writing he was also kind of a dick and they never had a good relationship um he that mentioned sucks. That, i know he mentioned that both of his parents um were kind of like they held him to really high standards and he mentioned in travels he's like if I got a 98% on a test they wanted to know why it wasn't a hundred percent and if my mom's listening to this she knows that that is her exactly that's how she was all through school but my mom's nicer than John Crichton I think okay she never accused me of being a cliche ridden oh that's rough but you know okay so how do you feel about so as a writer yourself as an editor Uh, as well because you're also an editor you're a writer and an editor how like what are your thoughts on like when you see writing and it's clearly mimicked style Mm. Um, how do you feel how do you feel about that when when you receive that from somebody and like how do you address it see uh, I'm bad at being mean I I'm getting better at addressing it I feel like which is part of the territory because it's like okay I'm like quote unquote officially an editor now like I have to do editing Uh type stuff and not just be like oh this is great and then like fix things behind their back so I don't know it's hard um I think and it's just it's difficult too because you're like telling somebody like I realized that you wrote these words and you're probably proud of these words but some of these words have to go yeah and also recognizing like what's just my personal preference versus what's actually a problem which I think you see more in established editors is that they're on the like oh everyone has to write exactly the way I write train which is probably how his dad was Mm, um yeah 
for me, I feel like it's a little bit easier because like I'm toward the beginning of my career. So I'm like, okay, not everybody has to do things the exact same way as me, but I'll call people out if like, you know, there's inaccuracies or a sentence is just like really awkwardly structured. Um, But that being said, those people are usually in their thirties that I'm giving that feedback to not nine. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably a better way to give a nine-year-old that feedback. Like I get it, pal. You haven't been around the globe. Um, your dinosaur story is cool. Yeah. Right. Your puppet show's great. We'll loop back to this when you're like, you know, older. See, I think that would have been more helpful. Like wait until high school to start giving this harsh feedback. Yeah. I used to hate, I used to hate, um, because I used to not like writing when I was younger than before I started reading books I did not like writing mm. I'll put it that way and and so being corrected on my writing was a miserable experience I saw those red ink marks all over everything and I was like ah, basically you're telling me I'm trash this is miserable <laughs> well and uh, was that doubly hard because like you weren't interested in it like you were doing something that you felt forced to do and getting like marked probably, up for it probably it was like first of all I didn't want to do this anyway <laughs> second of all I did my best man yeah right yeah poor poor little Third Michael Crichton all, did his I'm best nine. Too. I'm not supposed to know adverbs <laughs> and where they go yeah adverbs man you finally learn them just in time for Stephen King to tell you not to use them oh god <laughs> Yeah, but that's a whole other tangent. <laughs> it's like you taught me this, and the man who's who's the gatekeeper of good writing said, "I'm not supposed to use them." <laughs> Why did I learn this? it? <laughs> totally. Yeah, but anyway, so yeah. I, I really just wanted to ask, since you're an editor, and it's got to be difficult being an editor <laughs> and, and giving that news, and and just being like, pal this ain't gonna cut it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that definitely is difficult. And, uh, yeah, it's difficult to do it with adults. So I can't imagine saying that to a kid, <laughs> but yeah. So, um, despite all of this, his, his dad was obviously like the major influence, um, in his interest in writing, um, Crichton and his siblings would beg their dad to tell them stories at night. And apparently he would even like illustrate them on the spot with comic strip style drawings so so cool yeah um and then at dinner they always like talked about writing because obviously it was his dad's job um and they would talk about like correct word use uh and even pause to consult a grammar book if they started arguing about words so yes this is a very linguistic family um that's like kind of cool I mean besides besides dad being being a bit of a dick about how he gives his feedback it is kind of cool that at a young age they were interested in the topic and right his dad was in the profession of writing so that they they got to be it's almost like they got I guess a different kind of education and schooling on from the perspective of hey this guy works in the field and you just Mm -hmm. get to like have dinner chats about grammar and sentence structure which is honestly probably more useful than schooling um because you know it's lived Um, and also his dad, um, made sure that all the kids learned to type at an early age, which this was like in the forties and fifties. So pre-computers, um, so this was an, an excellent skill for them to learn. Um, so Michael Crichton started submitting short stories to magazines when he was just 13 and sold his first travel article to the New York times when he was 14. 
So yeah, he's going to turn into my um, Kazuo Ishiguro, I think. Uh, I, I hate him a little bit for this, but his family had taken a summer vacation to Sunset Crater National Monument in Arizona. And Michael thought it was like super fascinating, but there were no other tourists around. So he was like, other people must not realize how cool this place is. And his mom was like, well, why don't you write about it and tell them how cool this place is? And he was like, I can do that. So he ended up writing about this, this national monument. um, And the times paid him $60 for it, which is like, that's probably like $600 or more now. Um, What year was it? This was, if he was 14, it would have been like 56 ish. And I looked up the inflation for like in the sixties and it was almost like 10 times. Um, so yeah, that's a hell of a lot of money. And as a journalist, I'm pissed that that was the going rate for a freelance travel article from a teenager. Yeah, that was almost the converted amount would have been $615. That's ridiculous. That's insane. I'm very mad. Journalism just does not pay like that anymore. (laughs) But so he was like super blown away by this. Um, But he did later find out that the travel editor lived near his family and had a daughter in Michael's class. So he suspected later on in his life that the editor might have known it was written by a kid and just like kind of published it as like, you know, here you go, kid. Here's some support that you're not getting from your dad. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god that's the real tea that's the drama of this episode Dad's i know asshat. um and so michael Crichton also felt like pretty isolated growing up especially in like high school and stuff he talked about bullies picking on him a lot and a lot a lot of that seemed to center around his height so this dude was freaking massive he was six foot nine inches tall why would you bully somebody taller than you um he was probably super skinny when I was in high school the there were a couple guys in my grade who were like six foot five six foot six and they both weighed less than me so they weighed like 140 pounds or something that's wild see I feel like if I was a tall person and I got bullied for being tall I'd be like why are you talking to me when your (laughs) eyes don't meet my eyes you have to look up at me (laughs) there's also like the the tall person self-conscious though and maybe that's just like me as a woman more because I'm like five foot ten which always seemed very tall um but so I don't know if it's exactly the same with dudes but I know that I'm always very self-conscious about my height and try to like shrink down and yeah like social settings and like I guess too if you think about like a high schooler it's kind of the age where you're trying to figure out what what like peer group you belong in and so anything that makes you seem different than like the normal crowd of people is probably a self-conscious thing yeah shit I'm super super tall you literally stand out in the crowd yeah (laughs) like that's like a foot taller than average and you're like a teenager trying to deal with everything that comes with being a teenager which nobody really helps you through because you're just being dramatic right (laughs) so that was definitely an influence in his like teenage years um but he kept writing throughout high school he covered high school sports for the town paper as a reporter and a photographer and made ten dollars a week which is still like a lot back then if you're just doing general uh reporting assignments as a kid so he was just like very active and and honing his craft um and then he got that was a hundred that was a hundred that was basically like 
in today's money, that'd be $102.50. Which is pretty good if you're only doing like a couple stories a week or something and, and you're just like yeah. a high schooler. Yeah. You're basically getting paid. Uh, it's like a paid internship almost. And that's a pretty good wage for a paid internship. Seriously, you're making, <laughs> what is that a week? You're making like 400 bucks well, a he week. Well, he was making $10 a week. But like, obviously only doing it super part time. So like 400 bucks a month in today's dollars. That's solid for a high schooler. Yeah. Um, So then he goes on to Harvard University um, and he starts out as an English major, but you uh, found out why you think he dropped that, right? (laughs) Yeah. So when I was reading about this, it was really funny because he said, so he started he gave up studying English in Har- at Harvard, and he said it was because he didn't like the teaching methods, but I am pretty sure it's because he got a B minus on his George Orwell essay, and he probably just didn't appreciate that. Yeah, so- And was he, like, I'm dropping out. This the is shit. <laughs> Orwell essay was like his subversive, subversive method of like testing his professor because it was a plagiarized essay too. Yeah, he, he was trying to, he was trying to see if like his professor stood up to like the job basically. So he was like this very, he, when I was reading about this, it made it seem like he was a very like testy kind of person. Like, I want to see if you know what you're talking about. And so he did this whole thing where he plagiarized it. And so he got a B minus on it. And he was like, but dude, George Orwell wrote this. (laughs) Are you saying that George Orwell's writing is a B minus, sir? That type of thing. Yeah. um, So yeah, I, I feel like I don't know I feel like that kind of backfired on him not because not because it wasn't super clever but probably because the teacher was just like dude you're probably getting a b minus because you plagiarized this (laughs) well I feel like like it's not yours the professor probably didn't notice because I think he would have gotten kicked out of the program if he plagiarized like that like that's pretty that's a big deal so I think they check you're at harvard well, you can now, but it, it wasn't as easy back in the 60s. That's true. That's true. So. Now you can just be like, I see that you copied the Wikipedia page. Yeah. Well, they have like actual like websites where you can copy and paste a, a paper in there to check for plagiarism. Yeah. So he would have totally it. been screwed now. Yeah. Um, that's, but That's very true. So shortly after that experience, he switched to pre-med. Um, and in general, uh, you know, the crappy English professor aside he'd previously found Harvard to be like an exciting place where people were focused on studying and learning but not necessarily concerned about grades too much which I feel like is not the case in 2022 Uh, but he thought it was pretty laid back Mm -hmm. and then pre-med was completely different he said it was quote nasty and competitive Um, and one of the classes chem 20 was literally known as a screw your buddy class not as in Dang. like the dirty way, but as in like, if, so, if you missed what the professor said and asked the person next to you, they were probably going to lie so that you would do poorly in the class. Damn. So like getting screwed in all the ways you don't want to be. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Not the fun way. <laughs> um, but he kind of, he soldiered on. Uh, he also was writing for the Harvard Crimson in college um, and covered sports for an alumni paper, which paid a hundred dollars a month. So again, like almost a thousand dollars today when I worked as an editor on my school paper I was making like 60 bucks a week 
<laughs> and that was like five years ago. So wow. I'm really mad about this. <laughs> right. Um, and then at the end of undergrad, he applied to a bunch of medical schools, um, but then got a fellowship to study in Europe and did that for a year instead. Um, that was cool. Yeah. Uh, also at 22 years old, he married his first wife, uh, slight spoiler alert there that it's not going to work out. Um, her name was Joan and I think it's pronounced Radham. Adam, that seems right. Yeah. Uh, they had met in high school um, and she was studying child psychology. Um, they were also good friends with like a couple other married uh, couples who they had either known in high school or um, one of them was like his wife's previous roommate. So they had kind of like this very close, both geographically and um, like relationship wise friend circle of stable married people. Um, which I'm sure like, what are those? I know, right. <laughs> Especially in college. So I think that might've contributed a little bit to his success in medical school. Like he had this very stable home life yeah. and wasn't, it doesn't appear like he was doing a lot of crazy partying or anything like that, which mm-hmm. is good. Cause you don't have a lot no, of time in like med a, school. Yeah. He seemed like a like uber nerd. And I don't know if that's cause like you were saying earlier in, in the episode, because his parents were super like on top of him for, for like being on on his grades and being the star student or if because do you think he like naturally just loved being nerdy and knowing and studying at school or do you think it was like fully like I think he has a very nerdy son I think he has a very nerdy brain it seems like it I'm not sure if he's as focused on academics though it seems like that pressure mostly came from his parents whereas he just wants to like try new things and absorb a lot of information and yeah. and think about things um I I don't think he's as focused on academic success although yeah, it seemed to follow naturally for him yeah um so in medical school uh apparently they started with cadavers the first day which I did not realize was the thing and he writes about um wow. his his medical experiences at great length and travels and it was actually really entertaining um he made it his mission to avoid all the gross dissection jobs and somehow got I away bet. with it for like most of most of their time with the cadavers until like he had to saw open the head at one point. Like it finally caught up with him. Oh but, my god. But that until intense. that yeah, until that point, like every time his group would portion out the jobs, he'd always be like, Oh, I'll do it next time. And then next time would come and he'd like evade again what and just keep doing game. that. He seems he, very cheeky, which I is. appreciate. He also tended to pass out at the sight of blood, um, which is an interesting trait for a potential doctor. And it made his first like clinical rotation really difficult because in medical school, you're going to like all the different hospitals or whatever. And um, like, that's what makes me think some of his his more academic high soaring achievements were more like parent pressure right because like somebody who is squeamish and pass outy at blood going into the (laughs) medical field like that that just doesn't add up it's a weird choice especially when he's been clearly on the writing path since very young regardless of how cliched it was like that seemed to be a path that he enjoyed very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that became clear the farther he got in his medical like education as well. He did eventually like kind of get over the blood thing. Um, but in general, he seemed way more interested in the patients and their emotions than the diseases. Hmm. 
So like one example he gave was when his rotation saw him overseeing a bunch of heart attack patients, he would always ask them uh, why they had a heart attack. And apparently they all, instead of saying like, oh, like, you know, I didn't eat right or whatever, or like Mm -hmm. some medical reason, they all said like, like different events that had affected their hearts. So in a metaphorical sense. So like job loss or sad love stories or stuff like that. So he was getting like- Are you telling me that this podcast, if he had chosen a specific field of study, we could be talking about a therapist instead of a writer? We could be, yeah. (laughs) I don't know that he actually, you know, tried to help them with their problems, but his, his conclusion from this was he wrote, quote, we cause our diseases. We are directly responsible for any illness that happens to us, which like, he didn't mean that in a sort of like woo woo medicine way. Like, oh, you can just positive thinking your way out of something. But he was Mm -hmm. like, these people were all talking about like things that stress them out. And like, of course they had a heart attack when they like felt so terrible all the time. Right. Right. And and of course you might, of course, something like that might be triggered in the body with enough emotional stress, constantly like berating you in your life, you know? And I think that's something we actually understand more now in the sixties. I don't know that um, doctors like quite understood as much the link between like psychology and physical symptoms. Well-being. Yeah, totally. Um, there were also a lot of like moral issues that disturbed him about the medical field that he observed, um, during his clinical rotations, um, like the way unwed mothers were treated in his obstetrics rotation, like, because they weren't married, the doctors sometimes wouldn't give them anything for the pain during childbirth because they were like, you know, you deserve this punishment for your sins or whatever. Yeah. And then later on, like there was an elderly doctor who had made several errors, including one that required a woman in her mid thirties to get her leg amputated. Um, And like this dude never lost his privileges. And Michael Crichton was like, what the heck is up with this? And it just really bothered him that like everyone else around him seemed to just kind of roll with this. Like they never objected. No wonder so many of his characters in his books are like these twisted scientists yeah I think maybe maybe I wonder if this is how he dealt with some of that like all right cool I'm gonna write some of this weirdness into characters who are not good because I don't think this is good yeah I think he was definitely making a lot of observations about like how humans treat each other and and a lot of things about like kind of the coldness of science (laughs) yeah Um, he apparently tried to quit medicine every year, but the Dean of students kept talking him into persevering. So like after year one, he was like, oh, you know, the first year of medical school always sucks. Like keep at it for another year. And then finally three and a half years into his medical degree, he told the Dean that he was going to finish it because like he was already three and a half years in and then quit. Um, and then the Dean apparently sighed and said, quote, I thought you would quit in the end. Your fantasies are too strong. And what he was referring to there is like, obviously, Michael Crichton is often his own little world of writing and, Mm. you know, observing patients, not for their medical issues, but for their feelings and life stories. Um, (laughs) And so the background on that, like this whole time he'd been supporting himself in medical school by writing thrillers. His parents had, of course, three other kids in college at the same time, and they couldn't pay for everyone's school. So this is just so wild to me that he was like, oh, I know the solution. I'm going to become a published novelist. That's, wow, I can't believe I haven't thought of that as a solution to my needs. (laughs) I know. Usually when I tell people I want to be a novelist, they're like, okay, great. What's your backup plan? 
that was his backup plan for getting through college and it worked so well now you have a new thing to tell people first of all Michael Crichton, uh, Michael Crichton funded his Harvard medical stint by being a published novelist so maybe maybe this can work for me <laughs> maybe so um he figured he couldn't make enough writing freelance articles uh even though the wages for those are like blowing my mind so he decided he was going to write novels um apparently James Bond spy novels were really popular back then and he'd read a oh, lot yeah. of them yeah so he was like I can write novels like that um so he just did and his father-in-law at the time knew someone at Doubleday, the publishing company. Um, so the father-in-law sent Crichton's first novel to them. They said they wouldn't publish it, but they suggested um, another publishing company called Signet. Um, they bought it as a paperback and they called Michael to ask who his agent was so that they could negotiate. He, of course, didn't have an agent, so he had to go find one. And he recounts in travels, he's like, he met with three of them. Two of them were like dudes who were pompous assholes. And then the third was this young woman who had just started out in the industry. And she was the only one to specifically tell him that she wanted to represent his book. So he picked oh, her, okay. which I thought was like yeah, nice of him. Cool. And totally. probably says something about his personality that he's like very turned off by arrogant people. Well, yeah, he grew up with with his dad. Yeah, maybe that's not where with that his comes dad, out. but like you know, being told at nine that your your book is full of cliches. Well, like yeah, dad, I'm nine. I don't know anything. <laughs> I'm nine. Yeah, that's crazy. All I know is cliches and what I've read. <laughs> at least about, wait man? until my age is in the double digits. <laughs> Yeah, wait, at least wait until I've like experienced some things in high school. So the book that he published first was um, called Odds On. It was published in 1965. And uh, I actually read like the first quarter or something of this. It's, I feel like it's not <laughs> written very well, but maybe it's accurate to the style of the James Bond, like paperback thriller. Hey man, this guy was going through med school. He just had to get words out. Right. And that's totally it, I think. And also, I wonder how much was available at that time for people to consume. Like, like today, books are being published at astronomical rates just with self-publishing. Places like Wattpad where like anybody can just start writing stuff and posting it. You know, like mm -hmm. it's not hard to find something entertaining, you know? Right. Whereas I wonder what it was like back then finding like thrillers or non-contemporary or romance style books or like even sci-fi or just things that are just kind of a little bit more different. I wonder if that contributed to some of his success early on. I think so maybe. And also um, the genre choice, like he, cho he chose something that he knew was getting like there, there was a lot of demand for. Um, yeah. Like right now, one of the easiest genres to get published in that people always tell you about are romance novels because they just publish a shit ton of those books every single year. Yeah. So maybe thrillers were kind of like that back then. The thing. Yeah. yeah. The thing. Do so, you think that's also like bandwagony? Like I personally think that that's smart as a marketer. I think that's smart. Well, that's exactly what he was thinking. Creatives talk about how like I feel like that's hack writing because you're just doing what's popular or whatever, and I. I mean, yeah, but yeah, he doesn't make any like excuses for that. Like he, uh, frankly said, like he wrote 
these paperback thrillers to pay his bills. Um, and he got like really fast at them too. He would write them on weekends and vacations. Uh, eventually he was able to write one novel in nine days. So he, like, he straight up said he wasn't particularly like attached to the books. He just wanted to pay for his tuition and living expenses. Found Tyler's next enemy. Right. Yeah. Tyler's going to be so mad about this. Like you didn't even care about the content. But no, and he was pretty successful. So um, for his first few books, including Odds On, um, he used the pseudonym John Lange, uh, which was a combination of his real first name and then the last name of a Scottish fairy tale writer named Andrew Lang. So, okay, yeah, uh, and then that's a that's a fascinating name for a Scottish writer. Yeah, I'm. I looked him up because I was like, I have no idea who Andrew Lang is, and there was like some old drawing of him, and he had a nice big beard. <laughs> like okay um so yeah so slowly the writing became more interesting than the the medicine that he was learning about um and then later on in his medical career or medical school career he wrote a book called a case of need um that actually contained disguised references to the people at harvard medical school um and you were the one who found out uh, the pen name that he used for for this book it was jeffrey hudson which is another weird reference yeah some dwarf 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 i'm always confused at how heavy heavily you pronounce the w in dwarf <laughs> dwarf dwarf anyway. uh it was a it was the name of a court dwarf in the english queen hen Henrita Marie of France. Oh, okay. He was a queen's dwarf, but he had That's some like so side. problematic in the 21st century, the queen's dwarf. It was because he had some size thing that that um Crichton related to. Well, is, is it just like sarcastic because like a dwarf is obviously very short and Michael Crichton is six foot nine? Yeah, I think so. It was like one of those things of like, haha, I'm gonna name myself after this <laughs> extraordinarily short person because I'm extraordinarily tall. <laughs> right. Yeah. He only used that pen name uh once, I guess. Uh, but when the book came out, people gossiped about who the author Jeffrey Hudson might be. And uh Michael joined in because he thought it was like kind of funny. Um, uh, and then the book got nominated for an Edgar Award for the best mystery of the year, and he was like, Whoa, that's super cool. Uh, And then the book won, which meant that someone had to go to New York to accept the award in person. uh, And that was not fun anymore. He was, I bet. Yeah, he was like, oh shit, this got real. Um, But he had to like ask his um, like professor, like his boss at the hospital or whatever permission uh, to go there. Or actually, no, that was when it got turned into a movie. So he he was able to go to New York to accept the award. And okay. it turned out he didn't need to like worry about it. There wasn't like enough publicity that anyone at Harvard found out, like very different circles, like literature and medicine. Yeah. So nobody found out then. Um, but then a movie company bought the rights to it and he had to fly to Hollywood to meet with the screenwriter. And so for that, since it was going to be like a Friday through Sunday trip or whatever, he had to ask his boss at the hospital if he could get the day off. And the boss was like, this seems like a made up story. Like, what are you talking about? You're going to Hollywood. I'd love to know what his cover story was if he used one, because I, I think can't he imagine said he actually in... uh, said the truth. 
Oh, okay. Cause I can't, I was just trying to think like, how would you like, if you didn't want your colleagues to know you kind of maybe wrote a book that maybe kind of sort of included them, like, what would you do? And like, I can't imagine some like, hi, I need a mental health day to myself flying in like the sixties. No. Yeah. So I think that's like overwhelmed with my degree and being a Harvard student. Um, I need to take a mental health break for Friday and the following Monday. (laughs) Yeah. So I think he reached the same conclusion you did that that was not going to fly. So he just like (laughs) said the truth. And the boss dude was like, what the hell? This seems like made up, (laughs) but okay, you can go. So he flew out to Hollywood, rode around in limos, uh, had dinner with celebrities and then came back to work at the hospital. So it was just like a very surreal experience for him. Um, And then during this, like he was, he found himself increasingly listening to patients and wondering not how he could treat them but how he could use their stories uh or insight in a book uh like when he'd hear their symptoms he'd think oh it's obviously anemia but can I imagine a new disease that would present with these same symptoms (gasps) and he figured that probably wasn't how people would want their doctor to behave um (laughs) so that was like the final straw and he was like yeah uh after he graduated probably breaks some ethics code yeah doctor for sure client patient confidentiality right so i mean as soon as he graduated from harvard uh summa cum laude uh apparently he he quit he never got licensed as a doctor or any of that stuff um so this man wrote super cliches (laughs) from nine through harvard graduated top of his class basically harvard med school after quitting after lit lit school basically (laughs) because of plagiarizing george orwell which might i hope that was like a really fun exercise for him in like learning how to write in styles or different styles you know just like hey i'm gonna copy this really famous writer and i hope you like learned a lot from that I feel like it was more like a middle finger to the professor. (laughs) Yeah, it probably was. But we're all the way here. He publishes Andromeda Strain, which is his first bestseller during his last year of school. And when that happened, um, he also sold the rights to it to a production company that year. And that's what like finally made his classmates realize that he'd been writing and doing all of this stuff. And so all of the doctors and residents who had like shunned him before suddenly wanted to sit with him at lunch. And he was like really turned off by that. He was like, this is so insincere. But yeah, he became like a celebrity overnight with Andromeda strain. I'm so fast. So like, I'm like, it would never occur to me to like not ask you what you do for work or what you do (laughs) as a creative hobby, just as like a basic like friend thing. I am so intrigued at how you like sit with someone through classes for years through school through grueling schoolwork and not know that they've been doing this hobby thing that's really paying off like how do you not know that about somebody that you go to school four years with you know I think it's a combination between like him being so private like he actively didn't want people to find out but also like yeah these from all accounts, like these people seem kind of like jerks. So I think he was mostly bothered, not that they didn't know that he was writing, but that they'd all like been mean to him before or like just ignored him before. And now they were like, Ooh, you're like a big time writer. 
that's interesting yeah kind of snobby <laughs> that was always like my dream in uh high school and college I'm like I want to get like super famous and successful so that like all the people who were mean to me before suddenly want like can just show how fake they are by being yeah, suddenly nice and I can be like screw you <laughs> right yeah but, well yeah. I just find that I I just find it interesting I guess it makes sense him being a super super private person because again like we were talking about that that continues throughout his career of him being a super private person not really sharing much which I guess like good for him he found a way to like do this and fingers crossed hopefully he doesn't have asshole skeletons in his closet but (laughs) it seems like and he seemed to have a pretty good compass on who was and wasn't a complete jerk you know right hopefully hopefully that means that he was a good person but you know what it's the year 2022 i'm not ruling out that maybe he was an asshole too well uh yeah i'm about to uh school you on some of that because oh, shoot. um around 1970 so after after um graduating and all of that stuff he separated from his first wife um after five years together as students she apparently wanted to start a family and he wanted to pursue his career in books and movies um and he was like kind of sleazy after that like after they officially divorced he was dating around he would even date two girls who worked in the same office at the same time and he like he would talk about this with his therapist and the therapist would always be like bro don't do that they're gonna find out and he was like nah it'll totally work out and then it didn't both the girls would find out and get pissed and then there was like another story he told which like kudos to him I guess for just not glossing over the shitty stuff he did in his book he like fully called himself out on all of this well I would hope so if he has such standards for the people he's around (laughs) right yeah he's very transparent um he cheated on another girlfriend with a famous movie star but doesn't share the name um but when he was like planning to go out with this movie star his therapist was like your girlfriend's gonna find out like this is a dumb idea and again Crichton was like nah man we're going to an out-of-the-way restaurant um and then at that restaurant there was a gossip columnist there so not only did the girlfriend find out but all of her family and friends found out too and he just looked like a major jerk no shit yeah so Moral uh, of the story is we should probably listen to our therapists. Yeah, right. The, yeah, that's the, the lesson gave... of this podcast. <laughs> and the therapist like didn't say anything like that's a mean thing to do to somebody. The therapist was just like, logically, this is not going to work out for you. Yeah, right. Like, hello, you pay me for advice. Man. Yeah, this isn't even a moral issue. This is just like you're being dumb, and this is not going to work out the way you think it is. So as academically acclaimed as he is and um literature literaturally acclaimed (laughs) we're making up words here as we go along y'all he his uh interpersonal relationships were not acclaimed yeah and I'm not really sure what that's due to like maybe it's because you know a lot of hyper smart people aren't that great in social situations he also says that he had a uh, like massive sex drive so you know maybe it was just the uh the male uh sexual appetite that kept screwing him over and you know I'm sure it's a shocking thing to find yourself in a situation where you're basically obscure and bullied and 
ostracized kind of even if it was mild ostracization it's not like he had really amazing friendships at school with his peers according Mm -hmm. to his his writings and then suddenly you're catapulted into this world of like everybody wants you for the art you've created that's a really good point or the movie you're co-script writing whatever it is you know and this overnight change of like man nobody freaking knew me and the people who knew me were mean to me and now I'm like everybody's it guy of the moment yeah I think that's an not to excuse like being an asshole but I could see how that kind of pressure could lead you to some pretty shitty decisions for yourself just trying to like play around and experience this new role right yeah I think you're definitely on to something there um, and it's probably the reason that he had multiple marriages. Um, another notable thing that I was reading was that like, especially in the seventies, he started getting really into psychics, which surprised me since he comes from this like medical scientific background. Um, but like one of those experiences was while they were, um, while he was like going back and forth with MGM, the movie production company, um, on Westworld, mm-hmm. um, he, he went to a psychic and she told him apparently that he had a project that was up in the air that would begin in February. Okay. This was in December. And he was like, that's impossible. Like, or no, th- he saw the psychic in November and he was like, that's impossible. There's no way that we're going to like settle a deal on this movie and start producing it in February. That's just too fast. Um, then in December, the studio canceled the movie altogether. And then two days later, they changed their mind and they were like, yo, Michael, we're going to start shooting in February. <laughs> So that was like his introduction to psychics. Um, Okay. And yeah, Westworld. So we alluded to this a little bit in the beginning, but that was like, um, I think that was his first movie that he like wrote and directed. Um, I think he just like helped screenwriting on Andromeda Mm -hmm. Strain and A Case of Need. Westworld. So like, because we mentioned Andromeda Strain was his break. That was his break as a novelist a nobody and now I am a somebody in the writing world right and Westworld was his like big break in like I'm a creative person making Mm -hmm. stuff for the world that's popular and cool and fun that type of thing yeah definitely Westworld was one of the first movies to explore uh, he was pushing the boundaries of like CGI and computer graphics in Westworld and he was one of the first person uh, people to like pioneer that in film so have you seen the original Westworld? I have no, I have not. I have only seen because I'm not that big. I've only seen like maybe two or three episodes of the remake of it. I'm of not the a remake. West, yeah, of the the TV show they did. I guess a couple of years ago now. Yeah, um, I had seen that first. I think I made it through the first two seasons and then like half of the third season. Um, but I just recently watched the original movie. And I have to say, you know, it's it's pretty good, even though yeah. it's, you know, very dated, obviously. For sure. But I'm worried. I was worried about it because, like, I saw the, I saw the first couple episodes of the new one, which obviously, with all the technical advancements of, of film in general, it was interesting and it was well made. But I'm not a big Western fan, even though it is kind of sci-fi. I'm not big on the whole western setting so it didn't stick with me um and so I was like oh my gosh I know if I watch this movie made in 1973 it's 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 not gonna hold up for me at all and I don't even like westerns 
most of the special effects actually do hold up okay and i think it's because like you know with the violence and stuff they're just using human actors so it's not really that different right um but yeah and the story like it wasn't a very complex story i feel like tv and movies now have changed so much that like everybody expects some huge twist ending and now when we look back at movies from like the 70s and 80s they don't really have those huge twists so Mm -hmm. this is kind of just like a good action movie i feel like yeah sci-fi action a classic tale of man versus robot (laughs) they shot and released westworld in uh six months which is just like crazy um and then flying back from the screening in chicago this would have been in like late late summer 1973 he had like a complete breakdown and his problem as he saw it was he had run out of goals he was 30 years old now he had graduated from harvard uh done all this crazy stuff married and divorced been a postdoctoral fellow at the salk institute uh published two bestsellers and now had made a movie Uh, yeah what do you do after that yeah that was exactly his problem he was like holy shit i don't have anything i'm working toward um so one day he came across the book be here now by ram das um really have you heard of him i have yeah he's like this i don't know anything about him (laughs) i've heard of his name he's this huge figure in like the um like alternative psychotherapy like treatments world um and he had actually been a professor of psychology at harvard around the same time that Crichton was there and then he and another um professor got kicked out because they were giving lsd to students um and wait wait, wait wait michael Crichton got kicked out or no, is this no, no, ram no. das guy got ram das did so his name yeah. his name okay. was richard alpert before he changed it to ram das um okay. so yeah this dude is like a huge figure in like psychotherapies or whatever uh there's uh, a co-worker of mine who's like really interested in lsd and like alternative therapies and stuff mm-hmm. um and so he if he were listening to this right now he'd be like oh you don't know who about Ram Das or whatever, but he's like a big deal. Okay. Um, and one of the things that Ram Das uh, mentioned in his book was that he had this pivotal moment of going to India for like a pilgrimage and he came mm-hmm. back with a whole new perspective. So that So launched... basically Michael Crichton is the male eat, pray, love. Yes. This launched him into like this huge period of intense travel. And he'd okay. already traveled all his life with his parents, like on little right, okay. summer road trips and stuff. Um, and he'd also like, by the time he graduated high school, he'd been to 48 States and several countries. So he was like parents, like somewhat wealthy or like middle-class. Did you, do you know, because he's like going to Harvard and all this stuff. And I know he paid his way through Harvard. I'm just wondering, like, it sounds like he had a really rich childhood in terms of his experiences. My guess would be that, um, his dad probably made good money in advertising, Okay. Um, cause that's like kind of a lucrative field, but so maybe like upper middle class, maybe upper like middle class, but he also had like three siblings. So I don't think they yeah. were like rich by any means, but no, 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 for sure. I think travel was important to them. And I bet he had solid connections being a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. Or you no. Know. Yeah. So there's ways anyway. to travel. Um, but yeah, so when he got into this slump, uh, he pretty much took off for Bangkok right after that, uh, traveled around Asia. 
he took a lot of uh, exciting scuba diving trips with his siblings. They were all really into it, apparently, including ones where uh, he and his sister almost went too far exploring shipwrecks. Like he had a a scare with not having enough oxygen to get back up. Oh no. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, Or uh, a couple other instances, they got like really close to sharks. I love your next, I, I love your next bullet point. It just says Africa dot. Afro. Yeah. So he, uh, went to Africa at some point after that and did like safari. Um, he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with his girlfriend at the time. And it was so funny. The guides at the camp were betting against him making it to the summit, but they were betting on his girlfriend making it. I mean, we like, we like cheering the female leads on, but yeah, Yeah, they were, they were not confident in his abilities, but he did make it. Um, and then when he, like, it was kind of, that's a hard, hard climb. Yeah, and he did not have a lot of experience. So when he got back down, he, he learned about himself that like his whole life, he had defined himself as a person who didn't like heights, didn't like cold, being dirty, physical exertion, discomfort, any of that. But here he had spent five days cold, dirty, and exhausted. He'd lost 20 pounds and he'd had a wonderful experience. So he decided that he had defined himself too narrowly. And this was like a very eye-opening experience for him. We love self-awareness. And then in um, 1977 in December, his dad died. Um, And this was like very startling because his dad was only like 58 or something. And he, Michael was in the British Virgin Islands at the time. Um, And since he and his dad had never really reconciled, he was not happy that he had to like leave his vacation to go home and plan this funeral. And also I think he was like internally very upset that now that his dad was dead, there was they no chance there was no chance damn. yeah they they were never going to resolve their issues like damn it dad why'd you have to die um, you wait until after our vacation man i had things to say to you right um after he went home for that, that sucks though um it does. i'm sure there's people who've experienced stuff like that and maybe you're listening and that that, that really sucks yeah and um, later on, he did kind of reach some resolution with that, which we'll get to in a second, because um, after he went home the next year, 1978, he um, set off for London. He was directing The Great Train Robbery, um, mm-hmm. which was based off his 1975 novel about- Wait, um, does he- did, when did he, did it was he in, move to the UK? He was there or, for quite a while. I don't think oh, he okay. moved there permanently. I think it was okay. just for the job. Oh, okay. um, so yeah, so the movie- um or the movie and the novel are about like basically the great gold robbery of 1855 which was like a massive gold heist uh taking place on a train so he spent a a lot of time in london and the surrounding areas for this and that movie starred sean connery and donald sutherland um so he was like brushing up against famous people more Um, greatness yes more greatness and this uh as such fulfilled a secret desire he was like an international film director shooting in foreign locations with huge movie stars Uh, but he was terrified because this was only his third movie and he was not experienced but the whole thing went pretty well and then while he was in the UK he got seriously into psychics like he was going to them all the time just like trying to figure out how they figured stuff out he he would kind of like toy with them like he would a lot of the time he wouldn't even speak so like they would try to like pry him into divulging something and he just like wouldn't answer any questions and see how much they were able to come up with. And apparently he, he found that they were for the most part, like nine out of 10 eerily accurate. And this was like really interesting for him. And it kind of like, 
he just kept going with this. Like in 1982, he attended a two-week meditation conference in the desert of California that really affected him. He uh, talked to a cactus. Started to so fascinating. I just I you don't or I don't picture like somebody who's like med school student. No, definitely scientific brain. He obviously has a very scientific brain. Like just reading about him, listening to the way he talks, like the way he shares information the way he like distills stuff it's very like science-based and so like his extreme interest in like meditation and like yogis and consulting therapists consulting psychics is super fascinating you don't normally hear about that yeah and I think that's part of what I like about him is I like people who are kind of like walking contradictions in a way yeah and just like the whole time I was reading about how he like started to sense auras and uh you know in 1982 he got really into trance mediums and believed in clairvoyance and telepathy uh, and even tried astral projection and that's the thing that he said resolved his issues with his dad is like he was in this sort of projection state where he like saw his dad in his childhood and they like hugged or something and then when he Mm -hmm. woke up it was like all of the resentment melted away so really cool yeah he got so into he even went to like a spoon bending party with like this um I have a friend from I have a friend from Twitter who does that who does spoon bending it's it's yeah he told me about it and he was like super into it for quite a while yeah well uh he would probably have gotten along well with Michael Crichton because yeah he went to the spoon bending party in uh, 1985 with an aerospace engineer actually was the one hosting it so I mean I guess there's more of these like science-minded people who are into this stuff than you, you think. All right. Well, th- well, I guess, I guess what they're into too is like um, maybe poking holes in it or finding like, why does this work? How does this work type of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one thing that he said that he never really got into was the uh, notion of past lives. That was the one thing that he couldn't find like solid, uh, anecdotal evidence for if there's such a thing as solid anecdotal evidence yeah is 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 that solid anecdotal um like how would you how would you prove that I yeah I don't know I guess with the psychic stuff like he felt confident that he tested them enough and like Mm -hmm. made sure that there's no way they could have known his past or the things that they were describing that he was like was like past life regression therapy not a thing yet maybe I don't know I feel like that would have been pretty new I think in the 80s but I don't think he mentioned that I think he did he did do something where um his like guide or whatever thought like tried to tell him he was experiencing a past life Mm -hmm. but he was like no I'm just like a writer like I imagine stuff all the time this this doesn't seem plausible yeah the movement the the whole past life regression therapy thing or the like start of it started back in the 50s it probably wasn't oh. like a big thing for a while I'm surprised he didn't get more into that then or or try it more but it might not have been a well-known thing um so yeah so um that kind of like is where travels uh the memoir concluded like looking back on on those years um he wrote that he saw an almost obsessive desire for experiences that would increase his self-awareness he also saw them as a strategy for solving problems in his life so when things got bad like when he you know was having that 
existential crisis about what to Mm -hmm. do next. You know, he'd get on a plane and go somewhere far away and he didn't view it so much as like running away from his problems, but as a way to get perspective on them, which makes a lot of sense to me. Like, um, I remember after college, like I could not get a job in journalism and I was working in a grocery store for a long time and saving up money, living at home. And after Mm -hmm. a while I was like, you know what? I got to get out of here. So I took a month long trip to the UK and Ireland Mm -hmm. and it was awesome. And, you know, uh, I got a journalism job while I was there. So that's really cool. I bet, I bet hearing something like that, like that kind of story of like, I, I left the box of where I was and like moved to a completely new environment that maybe just doesn't house that problem. Right. And it also gives you like a sense of confidence. Like for me, it was like, okay, I can like get around a foreign country by myself. Um, And yeah, yeah, he, he says that like, he always returned to his life with a new sense of balance, which made a lot of sense to me. For sure. And you're just removing yourself from the environment that's causing and housing all this current stress. Mm -hmm. You're just like leaving. And so it, it can offer like, like a breath of fresh air. Exactly. Um, so then getting into his like later life. So as I alluded to, he had a lot of marriages. Mm -hmm. Um, so he had his first wife, Joan, and then in the late seventies to 1980, he was married to a woman named Kathleen St. John's. Don't really know a lot about her. Uh, in 81, difficult to find anything about his wives. Yeah. In 81 through 83, he was married to a woman named Susanna Childs. Um, and then in 1987, he married an actress named Anne Marie Martin, um, and they had a daughter named Taylor in 1989. Um, so he'd been through three marriages before he finally had a kid, which was interesting to me. Uh, and then also in the 80s, um, Crichton had been toying with a screenplay about a graduate student who recreates a dinosaur. Uh, eventually, he concluded there was no scientific need for a dinosaur, which is just like very science brain analyzing there so he decided no scientific need for dinosaurs man you know nobody needs a dinosaur Who so needs he just a tyrannosaurus rex so he decided this creation would obviously emerge from a desire to entertain which led to a you know um wildlife like zoo of extinct animals um and yeah. then in 1990 he instead of doing a screenplay published this as a novel jurassic park um mm-hmm. And he used kind of the same fiction as fact presentation that made previous novels like Andromeda uh, Strain successful. But I think his writing seemed a lot more mature in Jurassic Park. I bet. I haven't actually read Jurassic Park, but I read um, Andromeda Strain and I bet it would be interesting to like compare the two. Yeah, I've read Jurassic Park before and it seems a lot more like he got the balance between like science and entertainment down a lot better for Jurassic Park. Yeah. There's pages in Andromeda strain where it's just like, obviously the science nerds would love it, but I'm just as a reader, I'm like, you know, this is not interesting. Exactly. Yeah. No offense, but this is not interesting mostly because I don't understand a single word you're saying. Oh God. What was the line that I screenshotted on it? It's like, this is insane. Just how, like I didn't understand any of the words so it says they were about to begin biologic testing of the various culture media when the computer flashed that preliminary reports from x-ray crystallography were prepared like what does any of that mean Michael he reminds me a lot of um like almost a modern version of 
sci-fi uh robert heinlein yes that guy uh just because like when i was doing research for michael crichton i um i was looking at like okay who else was kind of like him that we could compare him to just based on like how smart he was while he was writing all these fiction books about like science and thrillers and all of this and like and the language he's using is like actual like scientific language like same with state of fear there's like science graphs in here um about some of the concepts and much like robert heinlein who published a lot of sci-fi books he was also a scientist Mm. and so i find it very interesting and and that's part of what's interesting about learning about these authors is like you read into them it's like oh they have this author career which is incredible on its own but then like wow they have like this whole other like student of life and learning career whether it's through college or any other or professional endeavors it's like they're they're writing but then they also know so much about the topics they're writing about which I think for anybody who's listening that is all who is also wanting to be a writer or a entertainer or a storyteller in any form I think that's a really important lesson that you can enhance a lot of your work through like diving into some of these skills or learning what you're writing about like maybe not fantasy maybe that might be a little trickier but like if you're in like the sci-fi genres just the the experience we can gain from like learning about these real subjects yeah and sci-fi feels like a genre where that's particularly important because I feel like if I tried to write the Andromeda strain, it would not work because I don't know what diseases do. I don't know any of the terms. So Mm -hmm. I would just be like glued to a dictionary the whole time and the story would not be great. But Michael Crichton already had like that vocabulary and stuff and Robert Heinlein did too. So I think starting from a science or like medicinal background helped so much for their careers Mm -hmm. and really set them apart. In Andromeda, obviously I thought it was over the top and I feel like he kind of like scaled back in later books because Jurassic Park it's been a few years since I read it but I don't remember being like overwhelmed by the science in that I think right. he did had a better balance of like plot and action versus explanation so um he was good friends with Steven Spielberg the director Spielberg learned of the novel in 89 so like right before it came out pretty much mm-hmm. um, while he and Michael were discussing actually the screenplay that would later become the television series ER um so Spielberg directed Jurassic Park and it was released in 1993 which is like the thing that I feel like we all know Michael Crichton's name from I mean I I was obsessed with the Jurassic Park movies when I was a kid and actually the first one came out before I was born so they've got like Mm -hmm. uh, good staying power in the culture yeah mine too yeah in terms of like other projects, like he wrote so many books, uh, I think like 26 novels total. Um, and then a lot of TV shows and, and movies he uh, wrote, created and wrote ER, which was on from 94 to 2009 with a total of 331 episodes. Um, wow. I've never seen ER, but like, obviously this was a, a medical drama that was like huge in, in the American culture. Obviously popular. He also wrote um, the movie Twister, which I feel like, isn't that kind of like a cult classic? Um, I've never seen it. Spielberg directed that one too. I feel like I hear about the movie Twister a lot. Um, He wrote it with with his wife, Anne Marie, in 96. 
so he published uh novels basically up until his death and this is where we get to the end of the the episode uh michael Crichton is no longer with us yeah spoiler Uh, alert i know i'm sorry guys and he died way too early too like he didn't die it was cancer right yeah he was diagnosed with lymphoma in 2008 um and was going through chemotherapy uh his physicians and his family all thought that he would recover um Mm. but he unfortunately died on november 4th 2008 at age 66 and kind of like in all the other ways that he was so private about his life like nobody in the public knew that he had cancer until after he died yeah Um, he kept it very under wraps i mean that's not something you would want even if you are in the limelight and your life isn't that private i feel like that's still not something you'd want like the public to know about yeah you don't necessarily want everybody weighing in on your cancer diagnosis or whatever especially nowadays when everybody who thinks that their opinion is worth something is going to say something about it Mm -hmm. and i maybe it's also because he was like a little bit controversial by the end of his life too Um, oh yeah because a lot of his books outside of like jurassic park and and are super like kind of political yeah i think the one that asked really got him was state of fear um in 2004 and a lot of like scientists were mad because he um like depicted uh global warming in like a skeptical light yeah so he was like there was a lot of um like backlash against him for that and it was around the time that global warming was becoming a much bigger issue because wasn't this 2004? Wasn't this the whole Bush? Yeah, uh, this might have been around the Inconvenient thing. Truth time. I remember watching that in my eighth grade science inconvenient class. Inconvenient Truth. Uh, what was the guy's name? Al Gore? Al Gore, yeah. That guy, yeah. Wasn't wasn't 2004 like the time he was like all over the place about this that sounds right <laughs> I think I think an inconvenient truth might have come out a little bit after that but yeah it was when global warming was really becoming like a hot topic in the public discourse like not just among like scientists <laughs> yeah because wasn't that stuff that Al Gore and President Bush were debating at the time too or am I getting my timeline Ooh. completely wrong uh, you know, I was a little bit young to be watching the Al Gore uh, versus Bush debates, but yeah, I watched Inconvenient Truth, so. I was too, but my dad was super into politics at the time, so. <laughs> so you absorbed it by osmosis. Well, I went back and learned about it when, as a teen, oh, but, okay. I, but I don't know if my timeline is right there. It, it, it sounds like it could have been around that time. Because I do remember, because my dad read State of Fear, and that's how I, I believe that's how I learned about Michael Crichton, is him oh, reading okay. State of Fear. And it and it was about these global, it, it was a hot topic. His book It was, was. about, like, eco-terrorists, right? Like, yeah, something like that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so maybe, maybe that's part of why he kept it under wraps, but also, he, I mean, he kept so many things secret. Um, and actually, when he died, um, he was married to his let's see would that be fourth or fifth wife fifth wife sherry... Probably fifth wife yes <laughs> i don't fifth. think he has one after he died <laughs> no um, sherry alexander um they were married from 2005 until he died and she was actually six months pregnant with their son oh, no. uh, john michael todd <gasps> Crichton, who was wow. born in february 2009 um and oh. so a lot of the like relationship tea is very hard to find but i suspect there was something going on in his uh his family life because there was a lot of drama when his will um was like read or whatever 
um, he and Alexander had a prenup that apparently provided for her after his death. But in his will, he explicitly wrote, quote, I have intentionally omitted to provide for Anne Marie Martin and all of my former spouses. His daughter, Taylor, was allegedly included in the will, and uh, she sued her stepmom when the stepmom tried to include her unborn brother in it. Uh, but I think the stepmom won because in the end, the will like got split three ways between them all. So I don't know what was up with uh, Taylor and her stepmom. And- all right. And then the last thing that I wanted to mention was just like another one of the like many hobbies that Crichton kept kind of a secret was that he was apparently a huge art fan and had this massive collection of like more than a hundred works of super famous art by like uh, Jasper Johns, who was a close friend of Michael Crichton. And he actually like wrote a coffee table book of his works. Um, Jasper Johns, he... He did like, um, one of the ones that I'm envisioning is like this big uh, painting of the map of America that's kind of like abstract. And then he did another like flag one that's very popular. Okay. Yeah. Um, Crichton also had like some Picassos, uh, Roy Lichtenstein. Oh, I found the abstract America flag one. Yeah, I, I'm a Art big America fan of uh, Jasper Johns, but I've he just had like a lot of uh, famous 20th century modern masters art. Uh, in his collection that's cool he does Um, a lot of this like line type of drawing yes yeah so in 2010 um christie's which is like a very famous auction house handled the sale of that and i think it the whole collection went for like more than a hundred million dollars or something so yeah man of many many hobbies so um that is the man uh the the myth the legend uh michael Crichton. yeah the mostly drama free sir <laughs> mostly drama free even though he did like he had some questionable relationship stuff but yeah i feel like except for that one part from his will he seems to not have uh, dwelled on his relationships that much we'll we'll be back when uh when kiddo when his kiddos are old enough to publish books about dad and we'll see yeah his son is not but uh taylor i think is like older than us she might be in her 30s so yeah she was born in 89 she's like uh i'm so bad she's in her late 20s right god i can't math join the club no yeah she's in her early 30s she'd be 33 taylor needs to spill the tea though because i need to know more about her dad's relationships hi taylor ann Crichton. we have we have some questions (laughs) we have questions for you no that'd be so insensitive (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, it's been like you know it's it's been more than a decade since her dad died yeah but it's, it's her dad <laughs> I just want to know about their relationship if he was a better dad than his dad was I would hope so I would I would hope that he would sort of especially with all his like later life Ram Dass traveling self-awareness seeing psychic stuff I would hope that he gained the awareness to like not be an asshat to his kids <laughs> well he still had like four more marriages after that so i think you know okay. maybe all the spiritual awakening in the world can't uh can't always turn you into a perfect human which i mean yeah. there's no such thing as a perfect human so yeah there is tyler's son tyler's son alistair wayne clausen is the perfect human we should all aspire to be more like him we should all aspire for that amazing oh i love the photo they posted of of, he had like a little cry face and becca's just like 
Oh, yeah. That was I like so that. funny. <laughs> like, accurate. Well, uh, thank you so much, Tivani, for coming on and talking with me about Michael Crichton. Uh, Thanks for reminding me. Super fun. If we do another author, I'll, I'll um, definitely do some uh, pre-podcast research on how dramatic they are. Yeah, we got to choose someone who's like super dramatic. Well, like super well documented dramatic because I still believe yeah. that Michael Crichton has the tea somewhere. Somewhere, but he, it's he somewhere. just keeps it hidden. We someone need someone who's like a public to, shit show. We need we need to interview his ex-wives. That's who's gonna have the tea. Okay. Uh yeah. Hey, I think, uh, the if you one. have ever, if you have ever been married to Michael Crichton, um email let us, us know. <laughs> Lewis and Lovecraft at gmail.com. Yeah, hit up our Instagram and just put the little teapot symbol. We'll know. Ooh, I like that. Very covert. <laughs> if if people want to see more of your stuff, I know you mentioned it at the beginning, but where can they find you? um all of my public social media is at dystopic hippie on like instagram and twitter um raredogeclub.com is our nft website libertyvas.com is our remote recruiting website and uh, i'm pretty easy to find well thank you so much and uh to the rest of you listeners i will see you again next time